Welcome to the Slam Radio Podcast, featuring TMA with Nick Hamilton, Extra Dose. This is TMA with Nick Hamilton. Wake your goat mouth ass up. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't know what this is coming down through the audience, but look like he just came out of the basement. TMA with Nick Hamilton. You know what I'm saying? Thank you because because now. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to a new edition of TMA with Nick Hamilton. Happy New Year. Happy 2021, everybody. Hope everybody had a good and safe holiday season. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you may be on this planet. Hope all is well. Hey, y'all, we back in the house. Definitely got a jam-packed show for everybody today. Uh, We're going to be joined by Sports Illustrated columnists and reporters, uh, Eric Williams, as well as Fernando Ramirez, talking some L.A. Rams and L.A. Chargers. We'll get into the whole Anthony Lynn firing that happened on Monday morning and the aftermath of that. What happens with the Los Angeles Rams as they move forward in their journey towards the Super Bowl? Uh, They have a playoff game against the Seattle Seahawks in Seattle on Saturday at 1.40 p.m. Pacific time. We'll get into that. John Wolford's successful outing on Sunday at SoFi Stadium. We'll get into that as well as we get into some WNBA talk uh, with Tamron Sewell, Spruill, excuse me, uh, who uh, definitely covers the WNBA top to bottom, does an excellent job. We'll talk to her about uh, Derek Fisher. Is it too much responsibility for him to have, be a head coach and a GM, as well as the, in, the impact on the elections that are happening in Georgia uh, when it comes to Senator Kelly Loeffler and her connection with uh, being in the ownership group with the Atlanta Dream and how the WNBA players continue to fight to get her up out the paint. We're going to talk about that and a whole lot more here on TMA with Nick Hamilton. Now, make sure you follow me on all things social media at Nick Hamilton LA. Now, first and foremost, uh, my holiday was cool. Uh, I know we're dealing with a lot of COVID-19 issues still. Certain places we can go, we can go. I know here in the state of California, everything is pretty much shut down as far as the restaurants and the bars go. You can't even sit outside anymore. Thanks to Governor Gavin Newsom. Um, you have to take your food to go. You just don't get food at all, pretty much. Um, so nowhere to really watch the game except at the house. So if you go a chance and you know get across some relatives or friends, um, and they have to be minimal because I uh, hope everybody's wearing masks and social distancing as they should. Um, so it makes things kind of difficult. Uh, but one thing is for sure, the Alabama Crimson Tide made it made it difficult for the Notre Dame Fighting Irish, and they booked their ticket to the national championship. Now, I was able to cover that virtually because the Rose Bowl had to be moved from its normal location here out, out here in Pasadena, California, to Dallas, Texas at AT&T Stadium. I was actually able to cover that uh, virtually. So that should be very, very interesting uh, when it comes to watching the game because i've never really virtually covered a game before like that in that capacity i'm usually at the games when it comes to bowl games so that was fun i got a chance to talk to nick saban got a chance to talk to uh the slim reaper himself got a chance to talk to mac jones uh notre dame quarterback ian book and let me tell you alabama put a whooping on them like you would not believe it would have been far worse let me tell you something it would have been far worse but Alabama prevailed. Nick Saban did did an excellent job. Steve Sarkeesian did an excellent job on the offensive end. And ironically, 
Steve Sarkeesian was rewarded with a head coaching job because the University of Texas fired Tom Herman, which opened up the door to Steve Sarkeesian getting another opportunity to be a head coach on the college ranks to coach the University of Texas. Now, let me tell you, I'm sure none of you are surprised at the fact of how much of a pressure cooker the University of Tennessee, excuse me, University of Texas, rather, is when it comes to their football. Those people are serious about their football, that program has needed a turnaround for a very long time i do i did see some progress with tom herman being there but apparently was not enough for the alum and those in charge to keep him on board so steve sarkeesian i think he's a good coach um i think he's definitely going to take advantage of his opportunity as being a head coach i'm sure he's learned a great deal from his his prior transgressions uh on being a coach i'm gonna tell you something the thing with alabama is simply this when you get with nick saban good things happen for you especially when you win Lane Kiffin learned that. Steve Sarkeesian has learned that. So it's going to be interesting to see how Steve Sarkeesian adjusts to being a Texas Longhorns head coach. Because let me tell you something. The hot seat begins the moment he arrives on campus. And if he doesn't produce, he doesn't get the Texas Longhorns into the Big 12 championship. If he's not beating Oklahoma in the Red River shootout or whatever y'all want to call it these days. Let me tell you something. His, his coaching tenure will be short-lived much like Tom Herman. But I do believe that Steve Sarkeesian will be a much better adjusted head coach because he's been around better D1 programs. So he knows how to conduct himself. He knows what coordinators he needs to have in order for him to be successful. But it also raises an interesting point because I saw some text messages, uh, excuse me, some tweets and some text messages about hit, uh, Steve Sarkeesian's hiring. And I don't have a problem with Steve Sarkeesian in his hire. I think Hey, if you're going to hire a head coach, why not get one get one from one of the best schools in the nation in Alabama, right? Makes total sense. But should there have been a more diverse coaching candidacy when it comes to getting their next head coach? Should there be a Rooney Rule type to make sure that black head coaches or black coordinators get an opportunity at these D1 schools? That is a question that should be raised. And I don't hear a lot of that being talked about on the college level. I hear more about that being talked about on the NFL level because of the lack of diversity. And the NFL finally uh, acknowledged the fact that they do have a lack of diversity issue that has been permeated throughout the entire league for decades. And with only three uh, head coaches who are black or a person of color, that is a problem out of 32 teams. And they are trying to raise more awareness. They're trying to do things to try to resolve the issue, but not just on the head coaching level, but in upper management, as I've mentioned on this show before. General managers, presidents, uh, president, you know, player personnel, different positions that de that deserve to have black candidates involved in the process. I don't hear a lot of that on the college rank. I don't hear a lot of that in D1 football and or basketball. I don't hear a lot of that. So it was a very good question, I, 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 and, it's, and it's sad to me that if one person or two people or three people are raising this issue, that means there may be many others that have this same issue. And I think that's something that that college football needs to address and needs to, to, to come up with some sort of plan to try to address it and try to make sure that you uh, attack it in a way where it does not become a problem. And right now it's a problem. Because how many black head coaches are there in D1 schools? There's 100, I believe, 117 or so D1 schools. 
And I'm sure there's only a few black head coaches. I can think of Herman Edwards, Carl Durrell at Colorado. Uh, Lovey Smith was just relieved of his duties as head coach at, at Illinois. And after that, I can't think of any. And that's sad. When you can't even think of any more black head coaches in Division I football, that's bad. That's a problem. No different than it's a problem in the NFL. But at least the NFL had the guts enough to at least address it and have and pull out discussions about it. I haven't heard any discussions in, in college football about that. So again, this is not a this is not a any shade thrown at, at Steve Sarkeesian for getting the University of Texas job. Not at all. But it does raise the question: how come there are not more black coordinators or other black head coaches up for these positions at these prominent schools? like the USC's, the UCLA's, the Ohio State's, the Michigan's of the world, the Alabama's or the Clemson's or the Georgia's or Florida's of the world. How come they're not more prevalent black hair coaches? That's a problem. So we'll see if it gets soft. I doubt it. But we'll see if it gets soft because I don't see it happening anytime soon. Do you? Hit me up at Nick Hamilton LA on all social media platforms and let me know if I'm wrong. Maybe I'm not being optimistic enough. Or maybe I'm just being too realistic. Maybe it's that. Speaking of realistic, did y'all catch the Suns in the Clippers game? Well, in case you didn't, there was an incident. Now, I know the NBA season is still fresh, but damn it, it doesn't, it's not short of theatrics or drama. There was an altercation between Paul George of the Clippers and Devin Booker of the Phoenix Suns to the point where the two got into it. And Devin Booker said, quote, you are a soft ass and you fill in the rest of the word. Uh, to Paul George and Paul George was hot. He was heated. If You go back and look at the video. I'm sure you can find it on YouTube somewhere. But he was heated. And rightfully so. But do I think Paul George is soft? No. I think people took a lot of things out of context because of what happened in the bubble last season and because of things that he came out with um, about him, you know, not being totally mentally there and he was having issues adjusting and things of that nature. But it doesn't make him soft because let me tell you something. I've never met Devin Booker. I think he's an incredibly talented basketball player. I think the boy can shoot the lights out. I think he has an, a great mentality when it comes to the approach of the game. But Paul George will put them hands on you. And I don't think he wants no smoke with Paul George. I don't think he wants any of those hands from Paul George. Because you can say what you want about Paul George. Y'all can call him soft and call him all kind of names, but I guarantee you, you're not going to call him that to his face. More than half of you would not even step step foot to him face-to-face and call him those names without something happening. And I ain't saying Paul George is no bully or he ain't no gangster or nothing like that. No, I'm not saying any of that stuff. But Paul George is a man just like anybody else. And there's only so much a man is going to tolerate. And Paul George is one of those dudes that will tolerate so much until you push him to a certain limit. And once you push him to that certain limit, you're going to get them hands. You want all the smoke? Devin Booker, you want all the smoke? You're going to get a goddamn brush fire. That's what you're going to get. You keep on playing. And I'm not saying Devin Booker is a punk. Again, I don't know the man. I've never met the man. I've only watched him play basketball and was in those media scrums post game when they would come to Los Angeles playing the Clippers and the Lakers. 
that's it he's never been disrespectful to me or anything like that so this is not any shade thrown at Devin Booker but let me tell you something Paul George had that look he had that that, that LA County Antelope Valley look like dude I will put my foot so far up your behind you'll be tasting shoe polish that's how he looked so if I'm Devin Booker you may want to fall back just a tad just want to give you some friendly advice fall back just a tad because Paul George ain't for the games I know he's getting tired of people trying to clown him about the, the whole mental stuff that he said about the bubble hell I'm getting tired of it too like man let that man live let that man live all right leave him alone let him play basketball we'll see what he does in the playoffs he's a good regular season player we all know that he just got to step it up in the playoffs so let that man step it up in the playoffs you might be surprised what he can do i ain't gave i haven't given up on paul george i'm not a fan of any team by the way i just there's certain players i, I like to see do well and paul george is one of those players i like to see do well because he got so much criticism and so many people want to trounce on him and 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 bury him at sea so to speak nah man let that man live let him ball out and let let's see how well he does in the playoffs if he steps it up in the playoffs which he needs to step it up in the playoffs then guess what y'all need to have a tall glass and shut the hell up and let that man ball out bottom line all right y'all coming up on the other side of the break we'll be talking a little WNBA action and nba action along what's going along with what's going on in the state of georgia when it comes to these elections that have a total impact on the country and how the wnba falls in line with the voting in georgia we'll talk about that in more on the other side of the break you're listening to tma with nick hamilton here on sirius xm slam radio 145. yo what's up baby let's go this is two a tongue of yo sway calloway this is spice adams this is michael the playmaker everyone what's up this is grok and you're listening Slam Radio Series XM. Yeah. Oh, yeah. All right. Welcome back to the program. That's right. TMA with Nick Hamilton. Again, for those who just joined us, happy 2021 here on Slam Radio Series XM 145. I have a very special guest in the house. She is an, uh, a critically acclaimed journalist and media personality you've seen her work across the new york times slam online the athletic wnba swish appeal just to name a few and she's also a future author we'll get into that and when that release is going to happen uh she does a great job uh, covering the wnba uh gives you the ins and outs of what's going on definitely entertained on twitter she probably has one of the best twitter pages out there right now uh, let you know what's going on. She's the one and only Tamron Spruill. How you doing, Tamron? How, how are you? Hi, Nick. I'm doing great. Happy 21. Glad, glad to be here. Hey, thanks for coming on. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit about, obviously, we know the season. Uh, we're, we're in NBA season right now, but the WNBA has definitely left an lasting impact, not just on the floor, but off the floor. Uh, we know what's coming up uh, with these elections in Georgia, which pretty much are going to dictate how the country is going to be set up. Uh, moving forward on the political aspect but one thing is for sure the WNBA and the ladies in the WNBA uh, made their voices heard very loudly and clearly uh, as it pertains to one WNBA co-owner in Kelly Loeffler uh, who's also a senator who has been uh, seen around some un uh, unfamiliar company I, I like to call it uh, she's definitely been 
um, making sure that she is trying to fight for her Senate seat, but what she represents is not um, productive uh, with the way this country is starting to move in the direction that this country is moving in. So I wanted to get your thoughts on uh, the WNBA players um, going up against Kelly Loeffler. Um, what was your thoughts when you first saw it? And where do you think these ladies stand as of right now, especially since we're such an, in a, a tightly contested race in Georgia? Uh, well, first of all, Nick, I want to thank you for approaching the question the way you did, because in so much uh, media coverage, we'll hear um, comments like, oh, the NBA set the tone for social justice in 2020 and LeBron James, um, you know, player, athlete of the year um, from various publications uh, the say their names and all that started with the WNBA. It was Angel McCautry who now plays for the aces who played 10 years with the Atlanta dream, um, who had the idea to put say her name on the back of the jerseys and Brianna Taylor's name to fight for justice for the slain, uh, Kentucky woman, um, who's killed by police. So, Let's start there, that the credit really does lie with the WNBA. And they single-handedly transformed uh, Reverend Raphael Warnock's campaign. Um, Kelly Leffler came out in opposition to um, the league's, you know, backing the players' desire to have Black, court, uh, Black Lives Matter on the court, to have Say Her Name on the backs of the, um, on their jerseys. Um, all catering to her base, which is a very, you know, Donald Trump base. And the players answered that by kicking her and her political ambitions and uh, wearing vote Warnock shirts that gave his campaign a major boost and forced the runoff that's happening uh, tomorrow. So they've been central to it. They've been driving it and they don't get enough credit um, because unlike their NBA counterparts, they're not multimillionaires. And they have more to lose than any NBA player. So thank you for putting it that way where the players are getting the credit they finally and recognition they finally deserve. Absolutely. And I mean, I don't want to discredit LeBron James or any of the other NBA players. I think it was a collective effort. I think uh, LeBron James' status, along with several other NBA players um, around the league with their status and their platforms, helped to continue to elevate and, and perpetuate that cause. Um, as far as bringing awareness to an issue that continues to get swept under the rug. So I definitely want to, you know, give a lot of credit to LeBron James, but I have to give credit to where the origin was, which was the WNBA players. I saw, like you mentioned, Angel McCautry. I saw um, a lot of Seattle Storm players, uh, you know, talk about it. I, I, a lot of the LA Sparks players, a team that I've, I've had the the good fortune of covering for so many years uh, with Candace Parker and Neka Gumake and, and, uh, Chelsea Gray and those and those ladies. So I think a lot of a lot of things happen. But I'm gonna be real. Let's 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 get real because on this show we can definitely get real. <laughs> and Kelly Loeffler is definitely perpetuates racism. Um, she she appears to be in line with Donald Trump and his philosophies. Um, she said a lot of different things. She's posed with a lot of white supremacists in uh, photos and things of that nature, and then tried to to, to double down on it. Um, and act like she didn't know what was going on, which is absolutely ludicrous. And it's, to me, is a complete uh, insult to the intelligence of the American people, especially those in the black uh, and, and, and communities of color. So why is it so hard for the WNBA? Because we saw what happened in the NBA with Donald Sterling and his racist comments that were finally exposed and 
Adam, Adam Silver done an excellent job under the circumstances, making sure that Donald Sterling was banned from the NBA as an owner. Why is it so tough knowing that they've had examples before them about how to get rid of people who continue to disseminate this type of, uh, of racist rhetoric? Why is it so hard for the WNBA and, and Kathy Engelbert, who's the WNBA commissioner, to push for a move to get Kelly Loeffler out of the ownership box when it comes to the WNBA and the Atlanta Dream? I don't understand it. Um, the, I mean, that's a great question. I think that the WNBA has been around for, you know, going on 25 years. Um, and because it has always been, up until very recently, really thought of as the little sister to the NBA, um, things that go in the NBA don't really, um, things that are stricter in the NBA in terms of protocols and how to handle these things have not fully been instilled in the WNBA. And until recently, the WNBA has not had uh, such prominence as it once did when it first started in the late 90s. So now that it is becoming uh, a factor of, you know, this is terrible publicity for the league, um, I think it will become increasingly uh, more difficult in the new year for Engelberg and the other decision makers to not do something with Leffler because the players do not want her. The players union, you know, they tweeted enough out. They want her gone. And um, it's interesting that Leffler has made a point to spend so much of her commentary towards, oh, there should be a separation between sports and politics. Well, she was a co-owner. She's a businesswoman who became a politician. <laughs> She's the one who introduced politics into the mix, not the players. And as you said, we're at a time in our country, you know, a racial reckoning of, of sorts, um, kind of a delicate time with so much on the line. And she stands in direct opposition to everything the majority of the players stand for. Um, so now that she's made herself known, no matter what happens tomorrow in the runoff election, I don't see how she can continue because, you know, we're getting to the point. If you remember some of the Clippers players um, back when the Donald Sterling thing right. was going on, they were saying, you know what? We're not playing for him. <laughs> we're, not, we're not playing so long as he's the team owner. And that's the kind of publicity that the WNBA should be looking to avoid. So they have between now and hopefully May, if a season goes on, to get that figured out. So they're not faced with uh, players showing up in, you know, pregame conferences or media day conferences saying, you know, yeah, I'm excited to play for the dream as soon as Kelly Loeffler's no longer involved, you know, because I think that's where it would be heading next. You made a valid point. Do you see the players actually walking away and saying we're not playing until the WNBA commissioner and the WNBA as a league does something to get this woman out of here? Um. I have no, I have not talked to any of the dream players to, to base my opinion on anything, but all I can say is the players I have talked to and their commitment to social justice, they're not backing down. Like this is not a, you know, this is a movement. It's not a moment, you know, like Renee Montgomery also in Atlanta has spoken a lot about that. It's like, this is a movement, not a moment. And they, and uh, Bethany Donovan um, in league operations, has said that she backs the players' continued effort. So Kelly Loeffler's the one who doesn't fit. I don't see them backing down. Well, I hope they don't. I've always said that the players really have the true power when it's all said and done as they come together and with a collective effort. And thus far, these ladies have done an outstanding job. 
uh, making their voices heard. So I hope people on board continue to to listen to these ladies and support them because they have a very valid point. Uh, there's no there's no reason to have this this woman with her her ideology in the WNBA as a, such a high position as as ownership. I think that's absolutely ludicrous. I think it's ridiculous. And I think the WNBA needs to stop cowering behind and worrying about what the aftermath would be and worry about what the aftermath could be if you don't move in that direction to get Kelly Loeffler up out the paint, as we say. Um, so it's going to be interesting. We'll definitely keep our eye out on that. But another topic I want to talk to you about, Tamron, um, the WNBA, because we all know the WNBA is about 75 plus percent black. Um, when it comes to these ladies that go up and down the court who, who showcase their skill set. But it's amazing to me that there was not one black woman head coach uh, in the WNBA until recently where the Dallas Wings finally hired Vicki Johnson as the, you know, as their new head coach uh, becoming the WNBA's only active black female head coach. Why did it take so long? And, and will there be more? Do you think? Um, I think there are pretty much has to be more now that more attention is being brought to the issue. Um, in January of last year, I wrote an article addressing this and it became a major talking point, not, you know, in media with the players um, through this social justice season, um, drawing the fact it's not only that it's not enough black coaches, it's not enough former players, period. You know, it's like you have Sandy Brondello of the Mercury, but very few former players um, become head coaches. Um, and so we have to look at our social norms and the assumption that men, you know, automatically uh, have some kind of like magic <laughs> solution for coaching and leading and just discounting the fact that women also do. And when you look at what some of these women have accomplished, like four state excuse me, four straight titles for the comments. Um, and so you have Cynthia Cooper and Tina Thompson and Cheryl Swoops. I mean, that doesn't just happen by accident. They didn't get lucky. They worked their butts off and they know basketball. And many of these players competed overseas. So they also know the international game. So it's basically comes down to just our issues with um, ingrained racism and sexism that discounts black women's particularly uh, from leadership positions, but as we see, former NBA players don't seem to have any issue finding their way in and, you know, just having an easier path to those top positions, front office or sideline. Yeah, hey, absolutely. I mean, I look at uh, their other coaches. I look at Lisa Leslie, who coaches in the Big Three and Ice Cube's League in the Big Three. She yep. had an opportunity to win. I think she would be a, a great fit for a head coaching position. Um, I still like Don Staley. I think she would be out outstanding. Uh, Kara Lawson, I think, will be outstanding in the WNBA, uh, you know, and in the work that she's doing right now at, at, at Duke University. Um, I think there are a plethora of, of, of women, whether they be former players or have just gone through the ranks of coaching uh, to have an opportunity to coach. And, and, and you know, it's, it's ironic how black women are being shut out of the WNBA, much like how we see black men being shut out of the NFL when it comes to head coaching positions. Exactly. <laughs> it's I the just, same. Yep. Yeah, I, I find it ironic, but not not surprised. But but, the, but that goes that underscores what you said at the beginning about how important it is what these players are doing. And, you know, my comment earlier is no disrespect to LeBron James or Kyrie Irving or any of these players who also are using their money, their right. platforms to promote social justice and racial justice. 
Um, and so it's more important now than ever. You can't address a Kelly Leffler situation without also looking at, you know, this kind of these hiring practices that keep black women out of positions of power in the WNBA. And then, as you said, it goes over to other sports as well. Um, it's all linked together. And um, the players uh, in 2020 recognize that who we put in office, um, who values the issues that affect our daily lives you know, is where it's at in far of, as far as promoting change. And um, so I feel like it's unprecedented what they did um, with the Georgia election that, as you mentioned, has an impact on the direction of our country for the next four years. Absolutely. Well, I will, I will give you credit as well. You spearheaded a movement as it pertained to, the, to starting the conversation about more black women uh, being head coaches in WNBA. So definitely credit to you. Um as well as as many others that have uh, you know been a part of it, um, I want to talk to you also too because it's one issue uh, here in Los Angeles, not an issue, but one situation here in Los Angeles. Uh, Derek Fisher uh, has now has also been named the general manager on top of being the head coach of the Los Angeles Sparks moving forward. Now, um, I think Derek, I think Derek Fisher has learned a lot uh, in coaching tenure as far as understanding the women's game and how to coach these ladies. Uh, in a particular manner. I mean, he's even mentioned that as well. Uh, but do you think it's too much responsibility and too much work to have a head coach and a general manager? Because my question is, hey, who do the players turn to if they have an issue with the head coach? Can't go see the GM. How does that work? That's a good question. <laughs> That's a question I don't think is probably um, asked or answered enough. Um, and perhaps that would be something to talk to players about, to see what that dynamic feels like from the inside. Um, but from the outside, I'm not going to say Fisher can't handle it. You know, he seems like a capable professional. He obviously has a storied NBA career. Um, but at the same time, um, I think we can look at Cheryl Reeve, who is also GM of the Lynx and head coach. For her to get to where she is, she was head coach for eight seasons with the Lynx and won four titles. So I think she earned the right to hold all the power um, based on her accomplishments. Whereas Fisher has only been uh, with the Sparks for two seasons um, and they had two ugly playoff exits both seasons, you know, the sweep in 2019 and then early ejection uh, in 2020. So for me, those are the, the questions. And we can look and you know see there are other coaches who know the women's game because they're former players or they prior previously coached in the WNBA or have been in other front offices who could take over the GM role if they're committed to keeping him as coach. Um, again, that's nothing at Fisher, but it does. I feel like it would be an, a disservice to not discuss these issues, particularly because it's a women's league that has so many talented players come through every season. Um, so it's not like there aren't qualified women out there. Um, so how were the decisions made? You know, we know that Fisher was appointed by Penny Toller um, without any other kind of uh, process to search for the head coach. Um, right. And that discounts a lot of women. So um, those are the, the bigger issues surrounding, in my, in my view, the Fisher um, promotion to GM than anything about his record or anything. It's, just, it's the more systemic issues. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how he handles both of those responsibilities. I thought it was a more of a convenience hire, 
Um, but again, he could actually be able, like you said, with Cheryl Reeves, he could be able to handle both and do do a good job with both of them. So, I mean, time remains uh, on his side as far as what will be seen moving forward. But really quick, before I let you get on out of here, I know you are an author. You recently completed a, a writing a book. Congratulations to you. I know it's going to drop sometime in 2022. Talk a little bit about this book and uh, how you came up with the concept. Oh, thanks for asking. Um it is not finished yet, so I'll tell you that right there. Okay. It's still, it's still in the works, um, but it is the publication date is 2022, which is tied to the 50th anniversary of Title IX. And it's about the WNBA from the perspective of the women who powered it. And um, we know that there have been so many years in the league's history of spotty, inconsistent coverage uh, the women don't get the, you know, love from ESPN and these other um, outlets like they deserve. So there are a lot of gaps in the history. And so my goal with the book is to uh, tell this history so that it's not lost. Um, and but in an exciting, fun way that focuses on the struggles that have impacted the league from becoming as big as it should be by now. But then also focusing on the triumphs and the accomplishments of the women who played. Awesome. Well, I'm definitely looking forward to reading it. I know everybody else will, too. 2022 is the target date. She will have this book completed. Uh, Tamara Sproul, thank you so much for coming on the show and really giving us your insight and knowledge on the WNBA and the topics surrounding the WNBA. Please let everyone know where they continue to keep up with you and follow you with all your great work. Oh, thank you. You can follow me on Twitter at Tamara Sproul. All right. The one and only Tamara Sproul. Thank you so much. And we'll talk to you again soon. All right. Take care. All right, y'all, coming up on the other side of the break, we'll get into some NFL talk. We know what's going on in the world of Los Angeles Chargers football with the departure of Anthony Lynn. We'll get into that with my two special guests, along with what's going to happen with the Los Angeles Rams as they face the Seattle Seahawks for the third time this season uh, when it comes to the NFL playoffs. Can they get the job done for the third time? We'll get into that and more on the other side of the break. You're checking out TMA with Nick Hamilton here on Sirius XM Slam Radio 145. This is Sirius XM 145 Slam Radio. All right, welcome back to the program. TMA with Nick Hamilton here on Sirius XM Slam Radio 145. Yes, the NFL, we all know we gotten past Black Monday, but uh, yeah, it still lingers through and through. I have some special guests on the line to talk about the Los Angeles Chargers as well as the Los Angeles Rams. Two teams going in two different directions, at least currently, uh, we'll have on the line. He, you've seen him all over ESPN. He's now working, doing a great job at Sports Illustrated. Uh, Los Angeles Rams insider, I like to call him the professor, Eric Williams, joins us alongside uh, uh, Los Angeles Chargers insider who does a great job through and through. You, you watch his tweets. He's all over the airwaves now. He's getting big time on us. The one and only Fernando Ramirez. What's going on, gentlemen? Thank you so much for joining the program. Hey, what's going on, Nick? Thanks for having me, man. I appreciate you. Thanks for having us on, Nick. This, this is going to be a lot of fun. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So let's get into it. First and foremost, I got to get to Fernando. I want to get your take on Anthony Lynn, who was released uh, yesterday morning. Uh, he was released of his head coaching duties in four seasons. He was 33 and 31 overall. Uh, did finish up 4-0 in the last four games of the 2020 season. Uh, unfortunately, could not do enough to hang on to his job. Uh, we both were on the, the Zoom call on Monday morning, uh, getting players, uh, the assessment of players, what their thoughts were. 
Uh, what did you come away from that Zoom call, and what did you think the players uh, are going to miss about Anthony Lynn's presence as well as his coaching and leadership? Uh, it was a lot different than – I was there when Mike McCoy was fired, and it felt like a lot different than uh, than the way Mike McCoy was, uh, was let go. You could tell the players really cared about Lynn as a human being. Um, Derwin James, when he when he told us that story about how the day after he was injured, uh, that he had a visitor at his front door, and he's like, "Who could that be?" And it was Anthony Lynn uh, coming in. That was that was very telling about the way Anthony Lynn was um, after the Jacob Blake uh, shooting in uh, in August. I remember he canceled practice, and he really decided to take a, a time of reflecting for him and his players. Um, he spoke to his players. He he had other people speak to them, and and they did a lot of really good things. So. Anthony Lynn, the human being, there's no question. He's one of the greatest people that uh, that we know. It's just Anthony Lynn, the coach, was really what um, what just at times could he had bad clock management. He had bad moments as a head coach, and then that franchise worst loss, forty five to zero to the New England Patriots, looks like that was really the um, the thing that kind of told the Spanos family, hey, you know what? Maybe this uh, maybe this isn't our head coach moving forward, and they decided on. On Monday, that uh, they would be making the change, and now it's gonna—it's a see and wait because um, you don't know how many people they're gonna want to interview. You don't know how many people who who what kind of candidates they're gonna want to interview. So it's gonna be very interesting moving forward to see who uh, who does they decide to bring in as their next head coach. Yeah, according to Jim Trotter, uh, who's a great insider, works for the NFL Network, had reported that it was about ten to twelve candidates they're gonna be looking at. Uh, for their head coaching position. I've always said, and I've even said on this show, I think the Los Angeles Chargers need to have a rock star coach, or at least a rock star name to be relevant in this market because you will be having fans possibly returning in the 2021 season. You've got to give them something to look forward to beyond the greatness of Justin Herbert, which he's displayed thus far. What are you hearing? Are you, uh, If you're hearing anything, and who do you think would be a great candidate uh, for a head coach for this Chargers team? Well, uh, Adam Schefter tweeted out that uh, they were looking at uh, the Tennessee Titans. They already put in a request for the Tennessee Titans, Arthur Smith, the offensive coordinator. So that's one of the guys that they're going to be looking at. Um, I, I really don't know in what direction Dean Smith and his family are going to really want to go with this. Uh, there's an, a lot of candidates. There's Eric Bieniemy, who's a former Charger himself, uh, played with the team, was in this, was a, a running back for the Super Bowl uh, for the Super Bowl squad. And um, there's uh, Brian Dable from the Buffalo Bills. He's the very interesting candidate because he built an offense for Josh Allen. Josh Allen came in as a struggling rookie, and then he slowly but surely built himself up into now an MVP candidate, which is uh, very it's very interesting the way he's kind of come up the last three years. Well, do, do the Chargers want somebody like that who's already built an offensive system? Uh, the way he did for Josh Allen, because there's a lot of similarities between Justin Herbert and Josh Allen. So do they want to bring him in? Do they want to go to the college ranks and go get uh, and pay a, a Jim Harbaugh? And um, that's not really in their nature to go out and get a guy like that. Uh, he's different. Uh, Jim really wants – he, he kind of walks at the beat of his own drum. So uh, he's a different head coaching candidate. He has some unfinished business in the NFL. Could the Chargers be the coach – or could the Chargers be the place that he wants to come in and kind of come back into the NFL and uh, and try and win again. It's going to be very interesting, but I, I see a Dable as like the more likely side that they'll lean on just because he has history with Tom Telesco. Um, he's done, like I said, the stuff with Josh Allen, and, and they could really look at him as the next guy to coach Justin Herbert uh, moving into the future.
Yeah, I mean, you made some you made some interesting names. I'm also looking at Robert Salah, who's the defensive coordinator for the 49ers. I think he, if anybody, I think that should be a, a name that definitely needs to go around. I know he's meeting with the Atlanta Falcons. I know uh, he's been meeting with a couple of other teams as well uh, moving forward. So that should be interesting to see. But to me, I think, I, I, like you said, I think Jim Harbaugh will probably be the best fit. I know Urban Myers, the name has been circulating a lot lately, uh, especially between here and Jacksonville. Um, I know that the report, there was a report that came out about 12 million. I don't see any NFL team really paying that money for a coach <laughs> of his caliber uh, because he has no previous NFL experience. But I, I agree with you. I think Jim Harbaugh uh, would probably be the best fit because he's a quote-unquote quarterback whisperer. If you look at his professional record, um, he, the, the worst record I believe he's had was an 8-8 eight and eight record, uh, which is not bad. Uh, a lot of 8-8 eight and eight teams around this, around this league this time uh, in this day and age. Um, can you see the Chargers uh, not only making a move with the head coach, but could there be a possible move on the general manager front? I know Tom Telesco is still there, but has he done enough in your estimation to hang on to his job as general manager? Man, this seat is really hot right now. I don't know why you're really, really trying to do with me. Uh, well, I just got an email right now saying that we're me, we're going to be talking to Tom on Wednesday, so I'm pretty sure that uh, that that's kind of out of the question right now. If we're going to be meeting with Tom Telesco, um, there's not a lot of general managers that get a, th- a third head coaching um, selection without at least an AFC championship or a trip to the Super Bowl. So it is very rare, but uh, the Chargers feel like Telesco is their best guy moving forward, and they, it looks like they want to keep him. Um, Telesco has drafted the the Justin Herberts, the uh, Joey Bosa's, the Keenan Allens, but he's also drafted the Jerry Killeries, the um, the Nazir Adderleys, kind of these players that they look like they might they might have a high ceiling, but they also have a huge drop off. So um, so definitely, I the, it looks like the Chargers believe that Tom Telesco is still their guy. So it'll be interesting to see moving forward. Um, now the thing is, will the head, like what if uh, the head coach comes in um, and they don't perform well, will Telesco be fired next season? And then will another general manager want to come in and uh, and already have a head coach in place and want to take the GM job like that? So it, it's a lot of question marks that the Chargers had to answer. But I mean, I guess for right now, they're sticking with Tom Telesco and they feel like he's still, uh, the general manager, and they felt like he's done enough uh, to keep him around. Well, like I said, my ultimate selection has always been either Jim Harbaugh or Urban Meyer for a head coach and, and Lewis Riddick. And I even looked at Rick Smith as a possible uh, potential general manager if they needed one, because I think these guys are two intelligent guys that know the game of football, um, definitely tapped in and check a lot of boxes that, that are needed in this organization. I want to talk a little bit about the Los Angeles Rams who won their game with a quote-unquote rookie style quarterback with John Wolford who won his first game I mean that kid was sensational a lot of plays I, I watched I know you were there at SoFi Stadium on Sunday on Sunday Eric uh, a lot of plays that I watched I know if the, if Jared Goff was under center they probably would have got sacked or thrown away but he able he was able to extend plays with his legs uh what did you see from John Wolford and how much did he impress you yeah for a guy making his first NFL start Nick I, I thought he was impressive um, a little bit shaky early, you know, throws the, the pick, and that was the only way the Cardinals got their, their, their only seven points on, on the, the game. Uh, but I thought overall, like you said, his ability to move outside the pocket and kind of make those those plays with his feet to extend drives is obviously something that Jared uh, either can't do or has been unwilling to do throughout the season. So it, def- it definitely added an element to their 
their offense. I did think he missed some throws at, at times, particularly early in the game, that I think Jared would have made just because of of uh, Jared, you know, playing a lot longer and his experience in that offense. Um, they didn't get in the end zone, so that's a little bit concerning. They were 0 for 4 in the red zone. Uh, but I think they were more dynamic and more explosive, which I think is what you were kind of getting at, Nick. Uh, they're able to throw the ball down the field a little bit, which they haven't been able to do early in the season. And I think your ability to do that kind of loosen up the defense and hopefully uh, will, will will help you run the football a little bit more. So um, if Bay has an interesting decision to make, you know, you, you're going to Seattle. Jared struggled up there a couple weeks ago. I mean, they lost 20 to nine. Uh, they weren't able to get a touchdown in that game. Seattle's playing a lot better. Uh, no 12th man, so you don't have to worry about the crowd. I think that maybe helps Wolford a little bit because you're not worried about how he's going to react and be in that kind of environment. Um, but then also, you know, Jared's a guy that has played in the Super Bowl, has played in very big moments, is 2-2 two and two in the postseason as a starter. Um, so I think a lot will come down to just his health. You know, where's he at in terms of coming back from that thumb injury? Can he really grip a football and throw it like he normally does? Um, we might not know about that till later in the week. Yeah, you're right. I mean, Sean McVay uh, was asked, I believe, on the post game, uh, has he made a decision uh, who he's going to who he's going to go to as far as being under center? Uh, which way do you think he leans um, as far as Golf or Wolford moving uh, uh, moving into the Seattle situation? Well, um, I think McVay and his offense would like somebody more mobile. You know, you can tell that when you talk to him. He, right. His eyes light up when you talk about kind of the, the possibility with Walford. But, I mean, 140, $134 million, that's what they paid Goff a couple of years ago. It's hard to sit that money on the bench when you paid that guy really for moments like this. Um, so I would think that you would start Goff because he's, he's used to starting. And if he struggles, maybe you have a short hook and you can put – Walford in to kind of give you some energy if your offense isn't performing like you you, you think it should. That would that would think that would be my approach to it. If Goff is healthy, start him because he's used to starting. And then Walford, you bring in kind of as a an energy guy off the bench if you need to infuse your offense with energy. As if the pressure couldn't mount up anymore. More a very interesting week out <laughs> there in Thousand Oaks when it comes to Sean McVay's decision on his quarterback. <laughs> Uh, but when you look at this defense, I mean, this defense has been absolutely phenomenal. I mean, they've had one hiccup, yeah. we know, about the Jets game. But beyond that, overall, it seemed like the defense has gotten better and stronger each and every week. Um, they had a, they had a pick six with Troy Hill on Sunday um, against an Arizona Cardinals team, a depleted Cardinals team. Um, where do you see this defense going? Because it kind of reminds me of the 2001 Ravens team where they had a, a serviceable quarterback, good running game, but really outstanding defense. How far can this Rams team go with that defense? I, I think McVay would take that all day if uh, Goff could be his Trent Dilfer, you know, to the Rams defense and how they've been, been playing. Um, I'm not going to give them those kind of flowers yet because that defense was ridiculous. Uh, but they are playing really well. They're playing very consistent. Uh, they have two of the best defensive players in the league, obviously, with Aaron Donald you know, on your defensive line and then Jalen able to take away, you know, the team's top receiver. And so that gives you some versatility in terms of scheme and what you can do and the types of pressures that you can create. Basically, you can pressure with four up front, but you can do a lot of different, uh, you know, movements up front. 
uh, different kind of actions. And then the back end, you can just play a shell coverage and and play four back there because your defense is so good at getting getting out to people with the front seven. Um, and I think Staley's done a, a great job of just kind of incorporating those two-star players and mixing and matching people around that. Um, Russell Wilson's that dude, though, now. I mean, let's not sleep on, on Russ and how he plays in big games. And I'm interested to see how they play against a guy like Russell, particularly because this is going to be Russell's third time facing that defense. And I think the more he sees, the more he can kind of figure out how to attack and, and be successful. You know, the first time they got after Seattle, the second time Russell was able to make some plays. And, and I thought Metcalf played a little better. And so I'm interested to see this third time they face them, you know, how they're going to defend Russell, how they're going to defend that that running game, which is getting better. Um, and, and, and can they hold Seattle's offense to 20? Because you would think that they're going to have to hold them around that number because of the way Rams offense is playing and struggling to score points right now. Absolutely. Really quickly, how impressed have you been with Cam Akers, man? This guy is sensational. I love that dude. I loved him in training camp. You know, I, I was I was disappointed that we couldn't see him early, get that rib injury. Uh, to me, he reminds me of Le'Veon Bell because he's so patient. And he knows that he's fast enough to get the edge. So he'll he'll be patient and suck defenders in, and then he'll just bounce around him and, and kind of hit that accelerate button and, and run past him. He's, he's, he's good as a pass catcher. We saw that. Um, I just, you know, hope that he can stay healthy. He's playing without high ankle sprain. He said he's 110%, but come on, you're not 110%. But I know he has to say that. Um, so, I, I, you know, I thought they gave him the ball a little bit too much. 21 carries. And they yeah. really didn't need it. I was like, man, put Malcolm in the game and, and get him out. Um, you know, I was thinking that, particularly in the fourth quarter when the game was kind of sewed up. Um, so uh, hopefully he's able to get some rest recovery, come out and and, and ball. Because only he averaged like, what, two yards a carry, I think. You know, re- really struggled. Yeah. Didn't look as explosive as he was a couple weeks ago. But um, I love his game. I think, he's a, I think he's an every down running back in this league. Um, and, and can do that for a while. Absolutely. Now, I want to get your thoughts, and both of you guys' thoughts, I should say, um, as far as their six candidate vacancies. Uh, we know about the NFL's lack of diversity, where they say, they, they say they're trying to work on it and trying to improve it. Um, we know about Eric Bieniemy. We know about a couple of other coaches that could be in line. Um, where do you see, what do you see happening with those six coaches? coaching vacancies will there be any black or other minority head coaches uh given opportunities for these vacancies or will it be just continue to circle the merry-go-round and just say hey we interview but yeah this is who we're going to pick now i'll let my I, elder I a couple go ahead for now no I'll, I'll let my elder go first I, I, that's a real <laughs> yeah, i got something for you later Fernando. <laughs> yikes <laughs> Uh, I appreciate that, Fernando. Uh, a couple places where I think it makes sense where um, a person of color I think has an opportunity is Houston, um, particularly with Deshaun Watson. I think the enemy in Houston makes some sense. Atlanta, I also think, is is a possibility. If they don't keep Raheem, I think uh, another person of color could get a chance there. Maybe it's Slaw. Um, I believe he was there before. Uh, before he he went to no, I'm sorry, he was in Jacksonville. Jacksonville uh, with the yeah. guys, uh, and and Salah's also from you know Michigan, so Detroit makes some sense. And I'm not sure if he's interviewing for that job or not, or if they contacted him. 
uh, also Jacksonville because he was there previously, although they might lean towards more of an offensive-minded head coach because of the number one overall pick. Um, but I would expect two, two people of color to fill these six vacancies the way it stands right now. And then on that, um, the one thing that I'm disappointed by is people like Jim Caldwell don't get another opportunity as often as some of these other retreads when they do right. have some success. And and I'll say that about Anthony. I mean, Anthony went, what, 32 and 31? That's that's and not awful. I, I think it's a I think it's enough to 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 garner another opportunity if there's a, a right circumstance for him to to get a head coaching job. I'm sure he'll have, have learned a lot from this first time doing it. Um, people have spoke highly about him, you know, after the fact when Fernando talks about some of the players and what they have said. Um, so I think it's not only getting that first crack, but then guys that have got their first opportunity, getting another opportunity based on what they did the first time they had a head coaching job. Fernando. Yeah, no, I, I agree with Eric. I think two, maybe three, but it, it, like you said, like Jim Caldwell actually had a good tenure with the Detroit lions. He got mm -hmm. him to the playoffs. There was a bad, I think there was a bad, um, push off call by, uh, one of the Cowboys, um, one of the Cowboys uh, tight ends. And if not, uh, the Detroit Lions would have won that playoff game and, and kind of snapped their streak. So Jim Caldwell definitely deserves to come back in the NFL. Um, I, I, the Chargers, I think, would be open to it. Uh, they, they, they've shown with Anthony Lynn that they uh, they just want the best coach available. Uh, like I said, Eric Bieniemy. Uh, the only reason – the Houston job to me just – the only thing that kind of deter like the the money situation there, and then the lack of draft picks is the only thing that I'm kind of like, oh, I don't know if I want that job. But obviously, uh, Deshaun Watson kind of kind of uh, it takes precedence over everything because of how special he is. There's only 32 of those jobs too, Fernando, so you really can't be choosing. Yeah, no, well, yeah, that's true too. Yeah, no, 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 100. There's only 32 of those jobs, so uh, definitely I agree with that. Um, yeah, no, Detroit. I saw a lot. It just seems like Salah, that's Salah's job. Like he's from there, like you said, Eric. He he's uh that that should be his job there. Uh Eric Bianami will definitely get his he can choose wherever he wants to go. Um I, I'm very interested to see how Pep Hamilton uh increases his uh job opportunity going into the offseason. Will he get an offensive coordinator uh position? I don't know if he's gonna get uh head coaching looks just because I understand he was a head coach in the XFL and he's been an offensive coordinator and and he just uh, got done with a great season by Justin Herbert. I just don't know if a lot of teams will try and look at him as a uh, head coach yet. I feel like if he gets a offensive coordinator spot again and then maybe he can show a little bit more of what he has, maybe that could catapult him next offseason into a head coaching spot. But I definitely will look at Pep Hamilton as one of those names that uh, in the future could be in line for – and he's still young – and, I mean, the way Anthony Lynn talked about him, the way that uh, Justin Herbert spoke about him really um, was incredible. And, I mean, I remember being there during training camp and uh, I was sitting there writing um, writing my pieces together and I'd look up and Justin and, and Pep Hamilton would be running sprints. They'd be going over some defensive stuff. They'd be looking at uh, the pieces of paper, like formations and different things like that, and he was showing him. And I'm telling you, everybody was already gone. It was just Pep and uh, Justin on the field. So that honestly is a huge plus for uh, for Pep moving forward. Uh, having a kid like Justin vouch for him and having an organization 
and a guy like Anthony Lynn. But like Eric said, also Anthony Lynn does deserve another shot. I feel like his like that's what I Eric and I were sp- speaking about this uh, recently. Uh, I told him this doesn't feel like the Mike McCoy era. It, f- it feels different. It feels like the players really liked him. It, right. it, it wasn't um, – yes, there's some things that he needs to patch up, but I feel like he could honestly do that, and he's going to end up being a good head coach just because of the kind of person he is and, and the, the understanding that he has with this player. So I definitely think that Anthony Lynn will be back as a head coach. I don't know if this year uh, – I think maybe he goes and is the offensive coordinator maybe of a Minnesota, somewhere where he has similar ties, uh, maybe in uh, New Orleans, something like that. But definitely uh, Anthony Lynn does deserve another shot in the NFL in the future. Absolutely. I, I totally agree. I think another opportunity, um, another, you know, sometimes a breath of fresh air helps everybody. So it's going to be a very interesting week coming up this week for the Los Angeles Chargers, as well as the Los Angeles Rams, as the Rams prepare to take on the Seattle Seahawks in Seattle on Saturday at 1.40 p.m. Pacific time. Uh, the Los Angeles Chargers will be looking for their next head coach uh, in the coming weeks and months. So definitely be on the lookout for that. Thank you so much for the great insight from Eric Williams, who is the great reporter and insider for the Los Angeles Rams and the Los Angeles Lakers. Let's not take let's not take that away from him. <laughs> uh, you can follow him on social media at Eric underscore D underscore Williams. You can also follow Fernando, who's going to give you the insight, who does a great job with the Chargers, giving you inside information at Real F Ramirez. Thank you, gentlemen, so much for, for coming on the program. And we definitely will talk to you sometime soon. Thank you for having me on. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it, man. Thanks a lot. That's our show for the, this week, guys. Thank you so much for tuning in to TMA with Nick Hamilton here on Sirius XM Slam Radio 145. You can follow me on all things social media at Nick Hamilton LA. It is 2021. Let's make it better. Let's make it right. And it's all about what you control. Thank you so much for tuning in. We'll talk to you next week. In hundred another hundred and sixty-seven more hours. Take care. I'm out. The views and opinions expressed on TMA with Nick Hamilton Extra Dose are entirely those of the host, guests, and callers and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Slam Radio.